For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. I me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne. What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. O oh, my dear father, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips, and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. I am a king that find thee, and I know, tis not the balm, the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the throne he sits on, nor the pomp that beats on the high shore of the world. This is the mighty history of the British Empire, a people living on a tiny island in the North Atlantic Ocean, built an empire that circled the earth and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation-building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's royal education with host Dennis Leap. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome to Shakespeare's Royal Education. I am Dennis Leap, your host for this new and different approach to the plays of William Shakespeare. Believe me, you have just entered into a thrilling classroom. Now, let me just give you a little bit about my background. In terms of education, I do have a bachelor's degree in English Lit. I took a concentration in classic English poetry and the American writers. I also have a master's in library and information science, which essentially makes me a librarian, but I really never entered that field uh, to much depth. Um, but I was trained to help others do research, and so I, uh, I love research, I love doing it, and I've done a lot of research, by the way, on Shakespeare. Now, in, in, my, in terms of my employment, uh, I currently teach English literature and Shakespeare here at Herbert W. Armstrong College. I also write for the Trumpet.com website and the Royal Vision magazine. So that's enough about me. Now, today I want to tell you why this podcast is so important for you. Now, if you, if you look at what's really happening in the world of education, and of course, uh, if you're not a Shakespeare teacher, you're probably not as sensitive to this. But uh, Shakespeare has become an anathema to many English teachers. And I want to read to you from several magazine articles just to show you how this has uh, changed over, let's say, the years from 2015, so over the last six years. And it really is, I think, it's, uh, it's a, a, a bad sign. And uh, I do think our children are being cheated. I think, uh, uh, you know, the schools are, well, essentially they're becoming woke. And, uh, you know, that's a term that I don't even know where they got that from. But uh, maybe I'll have to study that. But uh, this is from the Washington Post. I just want to show you the, the progression of how this has gone. And uh, this was a, an article that came out in 2015. And, in fact, it was probably right after the school year. The title of the article is Teacher, colon, Why I Don't Want to Assign Shakespeare Anymore? even though he's in the common core. And so, so this is written by a teacher. You don't need to know the name. If you want to look it up, it's in the Washington Post. But, uh, but here's what she says. She says, a new report on the teaching of Shakespeare in higher education found that English majors at the vast majority of the country's most prestigious colleges and universities are not now required to take an in-depth Shakespeare course. Now, here at Herbert, Herbert W. Armstrong College, the sophomores are required to take an in-depth Shakespeare course. And, of course, I love that because I have the opportunity to teach that. But this article goes on to say, but the bard remains a fixture in high school English classes. In fact, 
Studying Shakespeare is required in the Common Core English Language Arts Standards mentioned in specific standards throughout high school. So I'm not going to read those to you. But here's what one of the high school teachers has to say about that. And uh, it's, it's really, really sad as far as I'm concerned. It says, Shakespeare, of course, is seen by many as the greatest writer in the English language and central to the Western canon. The idea of not teaching Shakespeare works with their insights into the human condition is anathema to many English teachers, but not all of them. Some wish they could stop teaching William Shakespeare's works altogether. One of those teachers is Dana, and I won't read a last name there. And uh, she's a veteran teacher at the Luther Burbank High School, and of course that's out in Burbank, California. And here's what she has to say. She says, I am a high school English teacher. I am not supposed to dislike Shakespeare, but I do. And not only do, do I dislike Shakespeare because of my own personal disinterest in reading stories written in an early form of the English language that I cannot always easily navigate, but also because there is a world of really exciting literature out there that better speaks to the needs of my ethnically diverse and wonderfully curious modern-day students. Now, at, at this point, this teacher is not coming out and saying directly that they believe Shakespeare is racist. But as we go through these articles, you're going to see that's uh, what she was hinting at. And uh, it just, uh, as, as time moved on, they got more and more bold about it. Uh, she goes on to say, I do not believe that I am cheating my students because we do not read Shakespeare. I do not believe that a long dead British guy is the only writer who can teach my students about the human condition. And so, so there, that's, the, that, that's kind of the lingo that's really gotten developed even today. I do not believe that a long-dead British guy is the only writer that can teach my students about the human condition. And so, um, you know, the way I look at the world and the way some of the teachers are that, that uh, you know, I, I read about, they're not qualified to teach their students about, <laughs> you know, about the human condition either. I mean, the human condition in this world is so tragic right now, and it's not getting any better, and really, it's education that's causing the problem. Uh, this teacher goes on to say, I am sad that so many of my colleagues teach a canon that some white people decided upon so long ago and do it without question. I am sad that we don't believe enough in ourselves as professionals to challenge the way that it has always been done. I am sad that we don't reach beyond our own often narrow beliefs about how young people become literate to incorporate new research on how teenagers learn and a belief that our students should be excited about what they read. And that may often mean that we need to find the time to let them choose their own literature. Uh, that does not sound so good to me. It's, uh, I know my, my wife uh, went to a really kind of a uh, crazy college. I won't give you the name, but uh, one one uh, one year she was in college. They were allowed to choose their own grade, and so where is that? You know, where, where is that education? Um, so so that was from that article. That was um, uh, let's see, that was 2015. Well, I have one more, just one more point from that article. It says, this is the same teacher. It says, what I worry about is that as long as we continue to cling to one white man's view of life. As he lived it so long ago, we perhaps unwittingly promote the notion that other cultural perspectives are less important. And so uh, here she ends it this way. Here then is my argument. If we only teach of students of color, as I have been fortunate to do in my entire career, then it's far past the time for us to dispense with our Eurocentric presentation of the literary world. Conversely, if we only teach white students, it's our imperative duty to open up to a world of diversity through literature that they may never encounter anywhere else in their lives. So uh, this word uh, racist doesn't really come up in the article, but I think that's exactly what she's talking about. All right. Now, in 2019, this, this article came out from uh, Education Week, and this is another teacher saying pretty, pretty much the same thing. I think she still likes Shakespeare, but she doesn't know if we should still be teaching it. Uh, she goes on to say, Romeo and Juliet is on my syllabus this year. 
as it has been for the last six years in two different schools. I'm not alone. William Shakespeare is one of the most widely taught authors in U.S. English classrooms and the only author required by name in the common core standards for English language arts. But in recent years, my Shakespeare assignments are tinged with guilt. So she knows that they're in the core, but she feels guilty teaching them. And I'm not the only person who is starting to question Shakespeare's prominence in our classrooms. In 2016, students at Yale University petitioned the school to decolonize its reading list, included by removing its Shakespeare requirement. Teachers are realizing that a lot of curriculums in our classrooms privileges white male European voices and are beginning to question Shakespeare's relevance for students. So she hasn't come out and said it's actually racist, or, uh, but I think um, you know, for those of us that read these things, we know what they mean. She goes on to say, as I've grown as an educator, I've begun to question the merit and relevance of the canon. The historically white and male authored list of classic literature works that include Shakespeare in my classroom. My kids deserve to study stories that represent and validate their experiences and cultures, something I know is important for their development. Questioning how well Shakespeare serves that goal is crucial, especially considering that as the National Public Radio's Code Switch podcast recently explored, some of his stories penetrate problematic and outdated ideas about gender roles and historically oppressed cultures. And she gives the example, the Merchant of Venice treatment of its Jewish character Shylock, for instance, is widely criticized as anti-Semitic. And uh, I have an opposite opinion on that. And certainly, I think uh, William Shakespeare was dealing with a problem of Semitism, not that he was advocating it. And uh, it's, it's how you read it. But there, it's getting closer and closer to, well, Shakespeare's racist. Now, uh, here's one from Thursday, November 18, 2021. So this is just really recent. And this is from the Daily Mail. And it, this is uh, obviously the Daily Mail is a UK paper or United Kingdom paper, but it's talking about education in America. It says, revealed how woke English teachers have canceled Shakespeare because of his white supremacy, misogyny, racism, and classism and are instead using his plays to lecture in toxic masculinity and Marxism. So, so here, you know, they've taken a real turn. They think, well, you know, uh, Shakespeare can help us advo- uh, uh, you know, advance our Marxist ideas. And so, so they're putting a real twist on it. And uh, then they're also saying, you know, some of the uh, uh, plays where you have real strong male, male characters uh, they're using those to explain what toxic masculinity is. And so, uh, you know, I still say hell for the heroes. You know, we, we need strong males. And uh, you can just see that we're lacking in uh, strong manhood in, uh, in this country. So um, uh, and anyway, so, so here the woke, you know, the woke have finally gotten in there and they're, now they're saying that s- certainly Shakespeare teaches white supremacy uh, he teaches misogyny, and he teaches, teaches racism and classism. All right, so uh, I don't agree with, with uh, absolutely any of that. But I just wanted to show you that, you know, as time goes on, things have gotten a lot worse, and, uh, you know, what's, what's been whispered in closets is now being put just right out in front. So, uh, you know, it, it's, just, uh, it's just upsetting because, um, you know, when we... Uh, we handle Shakespeare here, there's a lot in Shakespeare that could really help this country and actually help the other countries in the world if they would just study it from the right perspective. But now what I want to do is I want to look at a source, uh, an article that is uh, has a much different point of view, and uh, it's a, a very, very detailed view. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on this article. If I remember it correctly, it was about six years ago, I was sitting in a fall orientation lecture being given by our college chancellor, Mr. Joe Fleury. Now, present at this lecture were the college faculty, uh, there was the incoming freshmen, there were the returning students, and then there, there were the uh, other college 
let's say, uh, employees were also invited to, to this lecture. And essentially what uh, Mr. Fleury did is he electrified us with a lecture relating the importance of William Shakespeare as an educator for the establishment of the British Empire. Now, I have to admit, I, I still can remember how absolutely stirring this lecture was and how stunning it was. And uh, uh, it, it, uh, it really did, um, this lecture and then a second lecture he gave at, at a, the next year, he gave another one on Shakespeare, but he based it on the book of the mysterious William Shakespeare by Carlton Ogburn. And uh, it, was, it was those two lectures that, that I began to get the idea for this podcast. And so, so uh, you know, it, it, it was really that stirring. So in front of me now, I have one of those articles. Now, there are several articles that have been taken from those lectures. And uh, I found the one that is probably the, the, the most thorough. In other words, it's not broken into maybe two pieces or three pieces or three separate articles. So uh, I have in front of me those articles, and for the rest of today's podcast, I want to give you details from, from this article. And uh, th there's so much here, um, I don't know if we're going to be able to get, get finished with it today or not. Maybe we will. But this is, th this is true education. This is real education. And this is what all college students in America need to have. This is what all high school students need to have, and maybe it needs to be toned down or made more applicable to them. But, uh, but certainly, um, you know, we, we, uh, we need to, let's say, give honor where honor is due. And so the title of this article is Shakespeare in the British Empire, and the copy that I have is from November 30th, 2017. And like I said, there's been some other articles that have been maybe shortened a little bit um, and uh, they're, they're also out there, but I think this is the best one to start off this podcast. And here's the opening. Uh, Mr. Flory writes, God gives us many examples to get our minds on the world tomorrow. Now, <clears throat> the world tomorrow is talked about in the Bible absolutely uh, in many, many places. And uh, the, we are not living in the world tomorrow. And even Mr. Stephen Flory has been uh, really hitting it pretty hard on the trumpet daily that this is not God's world and there there are religious bodies out there that they believe it is God's world and yet look at the disasters that just keep uh, it's almost like every week there's some new disaster because of some failure in government because of some failure in leadership and because there's this uh, you know insane thinking just spreading it's spreading like a disease everywhere and that's the woke thinking now uh he said god gives us many examples to get our mind on the world tomorrow and the world tomorrow is the world that jesus christ is going to establish when he returns and thankfully that return is coming really soon i mean if you look at how evil things are and it's just growing worse every day we really need the world tomorrow and there is really a lot of hope in that and so there is a different world coming, and uh, even as uh, is being explained on some of our broadcasts uh, going on right away, right now, is uh, we're a world in transition, and there is a better world coming. But in the meantime, it's going to get pretty sad. And so we have to have that faith and that, that, uh, uh, that, that thinking in our mind, the hope in our mind. Now, he goes on to say, even Solomon's reign was a type of the wonderful world tomorrow. And uh, how many people go back and study Bible history? Well, they just kind of kick it aside. And uh, we've had a wonderful opportunity to work with Dr. Eliot Mazar, who died earlier in the summer. And she used the Bible to find archaeological facts and, and uh, archaeological uh, items. And, uh, of course, she was mocked for doing that. But she's made some of the most incredible discoveries. And uh, you, can, you can even find that in, in our Watch Jerusalem uh, magazine. You can find that um, through our Watch Jerusalem briefs. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot here. It says, Mr. Flory goes on to say, I believe that in a way the great British Empire gives us good insight into what is about to come on the earth. 
some really exciting things happen in that empire, and God wants it to be that way in our lives. And so there is a loving God in heaven who wants us to have the best. But why don't we have the best? And it's because of, of us, and it's because of our sins. And uh, God cannot reward that, but, but uh, he's going to work out a plan where that day will come where everyone will, will be able to receive the blessings because, well, they're repenting of their sins. Uh, Mr. Fleury goes on to say, God had given tremendous promises to the descendants of Abraham, and particularly the birthright nations which descended from Joseph. Now, these are, these are uh, scriptures you're going to have to understand, and I'll tell you how you can do that in just a minute. It says, these Josephite nations which received great material wealth and world rule over the nations. Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, would become a nation and a company of nations, a commonwealth or an empire, and they would become a fruitful bough whose branches run over the wall. In other words, that's prophetic language for a world-girdling, colonizing power. And uh, uh, you can find all this information in Herbert Armstrong's book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy, and uh, that book will be given to you free, and you can get that at thetrumpet.com. Uh, you can either download it or you can put in a request and there will be no follow-up, and uh, no one's going to come knocking at your door. And so, uh, uh, but it's there, and there's a lot of history there that we need to understand. And uh, Mr. Fleury goes on to say, the modern nation that descended from Ephraim, and that's right there in the book of Genesis, and, and it's just shocking, you know, how these prophecies, you know, are there in the first book of the Bible. But the modern nation that descended from Ephraim is Britain. And uh, Ephraim was to become a company of nations. And there isn't any other country in this world that's fulfilled that but the British Empire. Now, um, he goes on to say, as Herbert W. Armstrong explained in the United States and Britain in prophecy, God withheld these promises for thousands of years in fulfillment of specific prophecies until around the year 1800. You study Britain's history and you see the foundation for its rise as an empire were built over time. Those sitting on the British throne are descendants of the royal line of David of Israel. And this is also proven in the United States of Britain in prophecy. And it was under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I that the British Empire began to take shape as part of the fulfillment of those promises. Now, I know even if, when you even say the word empire today to woke people, <laughs> that just gives them the shivers, you know. <laughs> but, but empire is not a dirty word. And if you're doing it God's way, it's a great word. It's a great plan to help the peoples of this world. Now, Mr. Fleury goes on to say, God had big plans, world-ruling plans for Britain in these latter days. It is possible that in order to help Britons in that task, God would do all he could to enable them to become educated. I think God would give his birthright nation who had David's throne a royal education. Now, that's where I got you know, part of the title for, for this podcast, Shakespeare's Royal Education. And uh, you know, God wanted the nation of Britain to have a royal education. And he wanted to give it every opportunity to do great things with an empire. It was, after all, an empire that reached out to the whole world. It is logical to me that God would want Britons to be able to think and conduct themselves as true leaders and that he would educate them for that role. God gave them the birthright, so wouldn't he want to help them in other ways? And so, so if you uh, really want to understand why this, this podcast is um, essentially... What I want to do with it is, uh, you know, identify in the podcast where Shakespeare taught leadership. And, uh, you know, there, there are several plays, more than one play, that he gives about the kings uh, that ruled England. And there's a lot of lessons in those, and I'll be talking to you about this more the next time to, uh, to let you know what kind of books you're going to need to really excel in this classroom. And there will be a few that you'll need, and I, I'll 
uh, tell you ways where you can uh, do it, it really inexpensively for yourself. But uh, Mr. Flurry goes on to say, I believe God had a hand in the life of William Shakespeare for that purpose. This man lived during the reign of Elizabeth I while this future empire was in its infancy. Yes, he was just a carnal man with many flaws, and uh, all of us are carnal men with many flaws, but when it came to his literary work, no author has been more venerated. And I think that's the truth. I have no doubt that's the truth. And uh, you know, every year I teach uh, Shakespeare, I learn more from what I read in those plays, not less. And there is a lot to understand, but uh, it develops your mind, it develops your thinking. I believe you know, teaching Shakespeare has been one of the greatest blessings in my life. And it's taught me to think deeper, and it's taught me to, to really uh, well, engage in deep thought and try and pick it apart. And uh, you know, it's just amazing, you know, every time I read it, um, you know, I, I'm learning something new. And then the new students that come in, and sometimes it's a challenge for them, but you see, I can help them now because I understand it. And the only way you can understand it is to read it more than once and, uh, you know, to really sit down and think about it. Uh, Shakespeare was a, just a deep thinker, and he wrote things in a way to kind of force us to also think deeply. And I can imagine that, that uh, you know, he was trying with his plays to teach even the British people how to think more deeply. Mr. Flory goes on to say this, imagine sitting down in the early days of that empire and for entertainment reading the works of William Shakespeare, a man who thought more deeply than any man in the British Empire. Do you think God might have had a hand in that? He says, it seems logical to me. And uh, one of the things that I can also say, you know, I'm doing my own research on Shakespeare's time, and uh, when we get into the, the, the uh, Shakespeare plays that we're going to get into in this podcast, and really there's months and months of information on this podcast, so it's not going to be five podcasts, it's going to be more like months and months of podcasts. But I know in my own study of Shakespeare's time, and in especially with the theaters, I mean, in Shakespeare's days, there was the Globe Theater. I've been to the Globe, by the way, in England. There was the Rose Theater as well. He was directly involved in those. And in my own study of those theaters, they were full all the time. And, and these aren't just the intellectuals of Britain. These were all the day workers. These were the laborers. These were the common people they were flocking to the plays. And in, in some ways, it really uh, made some of the, the religious elites and the, the, the leaders of religion angry <laughs> because the theaters were also open on Sundays and uh, people would flock to them. And I think, the, I think the British people as a whole really desired Shakespeare's education. And you know, they were being educated by, by the plays. Now, Mr. Flurry goes on, and, and this is a big subtitle, is Shakespeare Knew the Bible. And uh, it, it is a fascinating study, and I have several books that just list scripture after scripture according to play lines. And you can see where, where uh, you know, Shakespeare is, is uh, you know, he's, he's incorporating the Bible text almost verbatim in some of these lines. And uh, one of the things, uh, if, you, if you don't know it, I also have the Just the Best Literature podcast. And uh, at this point, we're going through Moby Dick by Herman Melville. And when Herman Melville was writing um, Moby Dick, he was studying Shakespeare just avidly. He was studying him. And uh, one of the things that surprised my students the last couple of weeks is how many Bible references Melville puts into Moby Dick. And uh, again, there's a lot of people that don't like Moby Dick, and there's a lot of people that won't read Moby Dick, but it's probably one of the, the, uh, the most unique and uh, interesting novels I've ever read in my life. It's like a compendium of facts, and it's, it's really, really very interesting. Mr. Flurry goes on to say he knew the Bible, but he goes on to say then, William Shakespeare was not a true converted Christian. However, there is something really unusual about him compared with other secular writers. And now he's quoting from another book. In their book, The Facts About Shakespeare, William Allen, Allen Nielsen and Ashley Horace Thorndike note the difference. 
Shakespeare knew his Bible. Several volumes have been written to exhibit the extent of this knowledge, and it has been shown by Anders that he knew both the Genevan and the Great Bible. Charles Wordsworth, a bishop of St. Andrews and a scholar well-versed in both Latin and Greek, wrote, Take the entire range of English literature, put together our best authors who have written upon subjects not professedly religious or theological, and we shall not find, I believe, in them all united so much evidence of the Bible having been read and used as we have found in Shakespeare alone. And so, so you know, William Shakespeare was not embarrassed by the Bible. He wasn't put off by the Bible. He studied the Bible. And uh, I, did, I do believe that both he and Herman Melville did have a belief, uh, you know, that, that the, the Bible was, well, you know, inspired by God. Mr. Flurry goes on to say, Shakespeare had access to some very good translations of the Bible. The famous authorized version commissioned by King James who succeeded Queen Elizabeth, was published during Shakespeare's lifetime. Shakespeare knew the Bible and wrote a lot about it. But there's even more about Shakespeare in the Bible, and I've done uh, ample research on this and even have uh, written articles for The Trumpet about the King James Bible and, and what a spectacular book it is and, and how many men were involved in getting it just perfect. Mr. Flurry writes, the only way people could understand that new translation is as if they were able to understand the English used in it. And so, so a lot of the King James Bible is written in poetry. And the reason why the translators put it that way, one, it was all originally written in poetry, but they also wrote it in such a way that it could be remembered because it's poetry. And so they really, really were very particular about you know, when they were translating, that they chose just the right English word to not only communicate the meaning, but to give it kind of like a meter that could be memorized. And uh, you can find that, you know, if you want to do your own study. Uh, I've done it, and I proved it to myself that, uh, you know, Shakespeare may have had a lot of influence on what was put in the Bible or the word choices because uh, he was so effective at using it. Mr. Flurry writes, the richness of the English language really flourished at that time, and Shakespeare was a major reason for that. Perhaps his variety of expression helped people better understand the scriptures. Consider this. In 1861, a book called Lectures on the Science of Language, Max Mueller wrote, a well-educated person in England who had been at public school and at the university seldom used more than 3,000 or 4,000 words. But Shakespeare, who displayed a greater variety of expression than probably any writer in any language, employed about 15,000 words. And so Shakespeare was a master at making up words. And uh, one of them that I think is, is uh, really unique is the word monarchize. That was a Shakespeare development. And that's a monarchize uh, is what a king does. You know, he monarchizes. And so, so uh, you know, that's, that's really fascinating. Uh, Mr. Flurry goes on and says, actually there are about 22,000 different words in Shakespeare's plays. He had a powerful impact on the English language right up until that time that the Bible's best and most famous translation came into being. Shakespeare's own writing was heavily influenced by the Bible. There are a number of instances throughout his plays where his knowledge of scripture is evident. For example, here's what Shakespeare wrote about King John. I am a king that find thee, and I know. Tis not the balm, the scepter, and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the throne he sits on, nor the tide of pomp that beats on the high shore of the world. And France, whose armor conscience buckled on, whom zeal and charity brought to the field as God's own soldier, rounded in the ear, with that same purpose changer, that sly devil, that broker, that still breaks the pate of faith. Now, Mr. Fleur goes on, when you break people's faith, it leads to their destruction. Sadly, the people of Ephraim today would have almost no faith. If they had it, they could pray and God would intervene and conditions would improve dramatically. But since their faith is broken, destruction will follow. 
And so, so here, if, if you go back to the play King John, and we are going to be reading it on this podcast, you'll be able to actually use that to take a prophetic look into today's Britain. And uh, you know, we know that uh, the, the, the uh, throne in England is uh, really in a disaster. Um, we, we know that the, that, that the young princes, uh, you know, at least uh, Prince Harry has said he doesn't want to be king. And, uh, you know, we know that uh, Queen Elizabeth is, is not well. She's uh, really advanced in age, and we know she's going to die. And a lot of people in England are afraid that when she dies, there's going to be, well, it's, it's almost like the soul of England is going to be gone. It, it's uh, now those are my words, but it's a, uh, it, it's it's like she she is England, and and uh, it, when she goes, England goes, and so you know we we have to really think about that, and so uh, I'll just repeat this: when this is what Mr. Flurry says, when you break people's faith, it leads to their destruction. Sadly, the people of Ephraim today have almost no faith. If they had it, they could pray, and God would intervene, and conditions would improve dramatically. But since their faith is broken, destruction will follow. And I think the same goes true for Americans today. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, are discouraged by what's happening in America. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's uh, happening right before their eyes. And they, they feel like they can't do anything about it. And in, in some ways, that's, that's really, really sad. All right, um, in The Merchant of Venice, uh, which is another play by Shakespeare, uh, the, the character Portia uh, makes a great comment about God himself. And uh, this is coming from Shakespeare. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty wherein doth set the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above the sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. Shakespeare realized that mercy is an attribute of God himself, is as uh, Mr. Fleury responds to that, that quote. Not many nations are taught about this in modern literature, but that is a powerful teaching in the United Kingdom from Shakespeare. And, and just think, if, if people really believed in a great God, and, and he, they would really believe that he's, he's a father, and they would really believe that mercy is one of his great attributes, and he's willing to extend that mercy to anybody willing to repent. And, uh, you know, there are so many, many corrupt things uh, going on in this country. And, of course, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Stephen Flurry has covered it very well. Uh, what just happened in Loudoun County? You know, a girl gets raped, and they want to protect their transgender policy. I mean, that's just that's horrendous. But God would, if, if people would repent of those kind of things, God would have mercy on them. But it's just going to continue to get worse. Now, uh, Mr. Flurry talks about another subject that that actually Shakespeare deals with, and uh, you know, it's the subject of repentance. Now, Mr. Flurry goes on and says, Hamlet is arguably Shakespeare's best play. Most people immediately think of the to be or not to be soliloquy in Hamlet, but President Abraham Lincoln considered the most important soliloquy in that play, my offense is rank. Now, Hamlet, I, have, uh, I absolutely agree with Mr. Flurry, it's Shakespeare's best play. Hamlet is my favorite play. And there's, there's, uh, there are a lot of Bible references in Hamlet. And I've had the students as part of their projects is to find every one of them in the book. And it's amazing how many there are. Now, Mr. Flurry uh, goes on to say, but President Lincoln, in terms of Hamlet, that was one of his favorite plays too, but President Lincoln considered the most important soliloquy in that play, my offense is rank. And so, so uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, we know, studied Shakespeare. Uh, he had two favorite books that he carried around, maybe three. One of them was the Bible, the other one was Shakespeare. 
And so we know Winston Churchill uh, also drew a lot from Shakespeare. Now, Mr. Furry goes on to say, the setting for Hamlet was the royal house in Denmark. However, I think Shakespeare probably got the idea from what was happening on the British throne. In the play, Hamlet's father was king, but then Hamlet's uncle, the king's brother, killed him and married his wife in less than two months. This part of the play is very intense, as if this man wrote it, had some experience in that area. This soliloquy takes place when Hamlet's uncle begins to realize what he has done. As you read through this, and I'm going to actually give it to you in a second, you can't help but see how Shakespeare was influenced by the Bible. Oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon it. A brother's murder. This is a reference to Cain and Abel. This type of murder took place from the very beginning. In the very first family, this world is cursed because Adam and Eve decided not to go God's way, leading mankind down a terrible path instead. Shakespeare takes us right back to the beginning. Hamlet's uncle continues, Pray can I not, though inclination be as sharp as will. My stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. Try what repentance can, what can it not? Yet what can it, when one cannot repent? O wretched state, O bosom black as death. This portion sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul saying, O wretched man that I am. And that's from Romans 7.24. This is probably where Shakespeare got some of his inspiration for this scene. Could a poet speak about the repentance in such an intensive way and not have been influenced by the Bible? That soliloquy continues. Bow stubborn knees and heart with strings of steel. Be soft as sinews of the newborn babe. All may be well. Now Mr. Flurry goes on to say, repentance heals just about everything if we truly repent. And uh, that is so desperate. Uh, all of us need that. And uh, all of us need that in America when you see what's going on. I mean, the the number of murders in Chicago is just is just out of sight. Um, uh, Mr. Stephen Flurry on a Trumpet Daily just talked about the the uh, amount of theft going on in stores all the time. It's you know I think it's a uh, billions of dollars is just stolen, and uh, you know it's it's uh, it's really crazy what's going on uh, in this play Hamlet. Uh, the mother is certainly involved in her husband's murder. And uh, as Mr. Flurry says, Hamlet goes to his mother, who was an accomplice in killing her own husband. And here's what Hamlet tells his mother. Look here upon this picture, and on this, the counterfeit presentment of two brothers. This was your husband. Look you now what follows. Here is your husband, like mildewed ear blasting his wholesome brother. Have you eyes? Mother, for love of grace, confess yourself to heaven. Repent what's past, avoid what is to come. Pretty strong for secular writing. Uh, in the next scene, Hamlet muses, The time is out of joint, O curse spite, that ever I was born to set it right. And one, one of the things about this play, uh, about Hamlet, he is a prince, and... Um, you know, we will be covering this play also in this podcast, and we'll focus on you know some of the pressures that are on princes, but also uh, you know Hamlet really needed to be a stronger leader, and in fact Hamlet really wrestled with himself uh, in this uh, that last line that, w that we uh, had read for you uh, that ever I was born to set it right, and he he just could not. I mean, he was a deep thinker; he couldn't get out of his thoughts. He said. Essentially what he said, what must I do to set it right, or should I set it right? But he understood that he was born to set things right, and uh, he was. And, uh, you know, he, he just could not, he couldn't get out of his head and his thinking, you know, should this happen, should that happen? And so that's a, that's a thing of leadership we have to learn. Sometimes we have to, you know, get our thinking straight and then step out in faith and do what we know we should do. Now, Mr. Flurry goes on to say, in this end time, we have witnessed a whole church turn away from God. 
and in a sense, like it or not, we have been chosen by God to set it right. And, uh, you know, we're not embarrassed about to talk to you about the history of what happened in the Worldwide Church of God. And, uh, you know, I lived through it. Uh, I can remember coming into the church and so excited I finally understood the truth. And we were not in the church very long at all. Mr. Herbert Armstrong died, and uh, he was such a great man and probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century. And yet when he died, these top leaders said they were going to go ahead and keep walking in his footsteps, and it wasn't. But within 10 years, that whole church was destroyed. And, of course, that led to the, to the uh, founding of the Philadelphia Church. And, you know, Ambassador College is gone, but now we have Armstrong College. And Armstrong College is doing a great work for God. Uh, we're educating, you know, uh, young people. We have an elementary school. We have a high school. And our young people are being uh, educated in the right way. And by the way, high school, they're taught Shakespeare. Uh, Mr. Floyd goes on to say, in this end time, we've witnessed a whole church turn away from God. And in a sense, like it or not, we have been chosen by God to set it right. And, and that's what the Philadelphia Church of God is. We're right, working hard to set it right. To 95% uh, uh, of the church has gone astray. They're, they're doing their own thing. And uh, we know they're going to pay a serious penalty. You don't come into God's church and then walk away from them. It's our part to set it right. And sometimes it's tough. And uh, we're accused of so many things. But uh, sometimes you have to say the tough things to really help people. Now, and Mr. Furry says, and we will do so. We should be repulsed by what the Laodiceans have done to God's work. It needs to be set right. Mr. Flurry does give another scripture there. I'll just read it to you. This is from Amos 9, verses 10 and 11. You can uh, you know, look that up if you have a Bible at home. If you don't have a Bible, you probably ought to have it for, for this podcast. It says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, The evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. The tabernacle of David had fallen, and it, it is up to us to set it right. And so uh, uh, I've known uh, Mr. Gerald Fleury since I was 23, and uh, uh, he is a, just a, a man that was loyal to God, loyal to God's church, loyal to what Herbert Armstrong taught us, and uh, he's still loyal to it today. He did not turn away like like other people he has known over the years. All right, the next thing uh, uh, Mr. Flory talks about in this uh, article is godlike reason. And again, we're going to go go back to Hamlet here. And again, Hamlet is my favorite play. Uh, of course, I'll tell somebody else that Henry V is my favorite play, and then I'll tell someone else that, well, this play is my favorite play. <laughs> and so so there's there's uh, probably not one that I don't like. But in Act 4 of Hamlet, Hamlet goes on to say, What is man? And he refers to man's creator is he that made us with such large discourse. And what Mr. Fleury is saying is it, it really does sound like uh King David and what King David was asking in Psalm 8 and verse 4, what is man? Uh, scholars claim that Hamlet represents Shakespeare's autobiography more than any of his other plays. And uh, I've, I've done the research on that, and I know a lot of people think that. And here he is talking about he that made us. Shakespeare believed there was a creator who made us with such large discourse. God really has big plans for us. Why would God create human beings in his likeness? We look like God, and we are about to be like him in mind and character. This change in character is happening in the lives of God's people right now. That change is leading into our being born as sons of God in his very family very soon. Then Hamlet continued. What is a man? Sure, he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. Think about that. We can reason like God, Mr. Flurry continues. We have minds like God. No animal has that capacity. There must be something truly special about you for God to give you 
a type of his mind. Why doesn't man see that? Did God give us the mind to fuss in us unused? And that word fuss really just means rust. You know, you're going to let your mind rust away. Uh, I was just had the opportunity to do an article on uh, how the, the southern border crisis is letting tons of meth and fentanyl into this country. And uh, the, the fentanyl is really dangerous, and they mix it with the meth, and it's just killing people. And they just came out recently with new stats that show that 275 people a day are dying on overdose of fentanyl. And I'm sure there's meth in, in, in that So, as well. So that's what you call rusting your brain. And uh, it causes your death. And so, uh, you know, uh, God didn't give us these wonderful bodies and these minds to just abuse. And uh, like Mr. Flurry said, did God give us that mind to fuss on us unused? We all have the godlike reason. As Shakespeare asks, is it for nothing? Well, I don't want to oversell a carnal man. Thoughts like this reveal he had a good insight into the Bible. Other places in the play also reveal that Shakespeare realized we're not animals. In Act 4, Scene 5, the king states, Poor Ophelia, divided from herself and her fair judgment, without the which we are pictures or mere beasts. Now, Mr. Flurry goes on, If you lose your fair judgment, you become just like a beast. What is the point of having all this judgment and yet not using the human mind the way God intended? If we don't, we have no future, just like the animals. All right, another... Another subheading here is uh, good luck. Considering the time of Shakespeare's work, the regard to start the British Empire, uh, he came on the scene just at the right time in a number of ways. And this is a quote from a book. It may be doubted whether any language will be rich enough to maintain more than one truly great poet, and whether there be more than one period in that very short in the life of language when such a phenomenon as a great poet is possible, author James Russell Lowell wrote, it may be reckoned one of the rarest pieces of good luck that ever fell to the share of the race that was true of Shakespeare, its most rhythmic genius, its acutest intellect, its profoundest imagination, and its healthiest understanding should have been combined in one man. And that's the title of his book is Shakespeare, excuse me, Shakespeare once more. This author calls it good luck, but could God have had a hand in it? Shakespeare came on the scene just at the right moment to harness the English language so effectively. Now here's another quote. A language which is perhaps the noblest vehicle of pathetic thought that ever existed, uh, and that's the end of the quote, Lowell continued. Uh, had Shakespeare been born 50 years earlier, he would have been cramped by a book language not yet flexible enough for the demands of rhythmic emotion, for the natural and familiar expression of supreme thought. All favorable stars seem to have been in conjunction at his nativity. He is talking about favorable stars to mean something that is beyond coincidence. Now there's still some more quote here. Under a wise, cultivated, firm-handed monarch also, speaking of Queen Elizabeth, the national feeling of England gave rapidly more homogeneous and intense, while the new religion of which she was the defender helped to make England morally, as it was geographically insular to the continent of Europe, Lowell concluded. Uh, another quote, If circumstance could ever make a great national poet, here were all the elements mingled at the melting heat. If a great national poet could ever avail himself of circumstances, it was the occasion, and fortunately, Shakespeare was equal to it. And so, so uh, th there's uh, proof there that there was something really kind of uh, uh, miracle-like in Shakespeare's life, his birth, his coming on the scene at just the right time and with his great skill. And uh, you know that those skills uh, and talents are given by God. That's, uh, that was put into his brain. Now, uh, one other thing that Mr. Flurry says in this article, and I'm probably not going to be able to get through the whole thing. There's still uh, a few more pages, but I think we have time to finish this section. Uh, Mr. Flurry goes on to say, this is the subhead, poetry uh, helps us understand the Bible. At least 25% of the Bible is written poetic form. This is a quote. 
we probably don't appreciate that fact as much as we should. Poetry is a way to communicate a powerful message in a compressed way. As poet, Shakespeare understood this like no other. Miriam Joseph notes that Shakespeare lived, and this is a quote, in an age ardently devoted to reading of the Bible, wherein a knowledge of the figures of rhetoric helped much for the better understanding of the Holy Scriptures. In uh, her book, Miriam Joseph's, is Shakespeare's use of the arts of language. And uh, she's quoting 16th century author uh, Henry Peacham. By understanding language effectively, they were able to understand the Bible much better. The same holds true for us today in our Bible study. And that's why when you hear some of these teachers say, well, they don't want to have to teach these weird words. Well, learning those weird words, you know, really helps you. In, uh, in, in my uh, English class, uh, when we get into Shakespeare, there's, there's a, a part where the word pate is used. And uh, it's P-A-T-E. And essentially all that means is your head or your skull. And uh, one of the students said to me one day, well, that's old English. How do we know what that is? And I said, and I told them to go, go to their Bible and look at a certain psalm. I said, if you do that, you're going to find the same word. And uh, they were shocked. <laughs> I said, so, so it's not old English. Uh, I did have to read some old English. And I'll tell you, it's not easy to remember. He goes on to say, Shakespeare's age was the beginning of a rising mighty British empire. Today, that empire is gone. And British society is experiencing dangerously serious problems. And of course, I think Mr. Floyd agreed with me if I added, and so is America today. These problems can only be solved by reading the Bible and applying what it teaches. Speaking of some other poets of the day, Joseph continues, Finner, in the three editions of his work, took all of the illustrations for both his logic and his rhetoric from the Bible. Blunderville, Rubanes, I guess, and Morris, seven centuries, seven centuries earlier, valued logic as a mean to find the truth in the scripture and perceive and confide, confute the subtle deceits of heretics. It says, these poets used logic to help their understanding of the Bible and therefore were able to withstand the crazy reasoning of heretics. Isn't there a need for that today? For so many in this world, logic completely escapes them. Noting Shakespeare's abilities, Lowell wrote that Ben Jonson, a contemporary of Shakespeare, was right also in thinking that eloquence had grown backwards. He lived long enough to see the language of verse become, in a measure, a traditionary and conventional. There was no man left to whom, as to Shakespeare, perfect concept gave perfection of phrase. Shakespeare was a perfectionist. He just kept building on and improving his work year after year after year. And as far as secular literature is concerned, there are some real masterpieces there. Now Mr. Flurry goes on. Lyle wrote, the hold which Shakespeare has acquired and maintained upon minds, so many and so various in so many vital respects, utterly unsympathetic and even incapable of sympathy with his own, is one of the most noteworthy phenomena in the history of literature. Lyle marveled how Shakespeare was able to appeal to so many, his popularity growing so much that his writings are quoted in the Bible. And so... So that is, you know, a marvelous quality of Shakespeare. And I guess we have a little bit of time, so I might be able to get into this next section. And so uh, uh, this subhead is Seeking Perfection. It says, writing of a 1623 collection of Shakespeare's plays, Lowell continued, it should be deferred to as authority in all cases where it does not make Shakespeare write bad sense, uncouth meter, or false grammar, of all which we believe him to have been more supremely incapable than any other man who ever wrote English. Shakespeare was incapable of writing uncouth meter or false grammar. He was a perfectionist. His poetry is remarkably perfect. Jesus Christ tells us, I want you to become perfect like my father. And that's from taken from Matthew 5, 48. It says, uh, by studying someone who was a perfectionist, we can learn more about that goal. We can all strive harder for perfection. And uh, that's sadly missing, uh, you know, in, t in today's society. And, uh, you know, as society is degenerating, so is our perfection. 
um, you know, like Steve Jobs, he was a perfectionist, and uh, he's dead now. I don't think there is probably many like Steve Jobs still out there today. Uh, Mr. Flay goes on, notice what Johnson wrote in his tribute to Shakespeare after he died. And this is a, a poem. It says, he who cast to write a living line must sweat, such as thine are, and strike the second heat upon the muse's anvil, turn the same, and himself with it that he thinks to frame, or for the laurel that he may gain a scorn, for a good poet's made as well as born. And so, so uh, um, you know, it's, it's just uh, one of those things that, um, you know, we have to, we have to uh, really understand about Shakespeare is that, that uh, uh, he was made. He was made that way, and it's made before, because of his desire, you know, for perfection. And so one thing that uh, Mr. Floyd goes on just a little bit here, I, I, can, I have enough time for maybe one more paragraph. It says, Shakespeare made his lines live because he sweated and hammered away at the muse's anvil. He even continued to improve his plays over the years. He set his play upon the muse's anvil, beating it here and there, correcting it as he went, came out the other end with a perfect product. It wasn't easy for Shakespeare to produce his masterpiece. God didn't pour that ability into his plays. God will never do that, even if he actually led him all the way. We have to follow the same formula in our lives. It's amazing what you can produce when you sweat to yield yourself to God. That's all the time I have for today's program. On our next program, I will continue with this article and give you details of how you will be able to participate in this podcast. So please write me any comments you may have to comments at kpcg.fm. So join us again next time as we advance our royal education. You've been listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education on Trumpet Radio. 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.